All right, if you will take your Bibles, please open them to the book of Hebrews, seventh chapter. Join me in standing out of reverence for the reading of God's Word. Hebrews chapter 7, and we will begin at verse 11. Now therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek, and not be called according to the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed, of necessity there is also a change of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe, from which no man has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. And yet it is far more evident, if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest who has come, not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. Let's pray. God, so often in your word, you proclaim to us truth. And so often in our haste and foolishness, we fail to hear. God, let us recognize that you have spoken of truth from the very beginning, and that you have done all that you have said, and that you bring it all to pass in the person of Christ. Lord, and even where we do not understand or you have hidden things from us, you still accomplish all that you set out to accomplish. And we ask in Jesus' name that you would let us believe everything you say. For it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So God is a God who speaks. And when he speaks, he calls his children to hear and to obey. There is much confusion in the world and in the church about the revelation of God. To whom does God speak? How does he speak? Just plainly, does he speak to us in visions? Why does God speak? In the end, God speaks to us through his word by the Spirit of Christ. And what is more, his word is the arbiter of all truth. Anything that denies the word of God denies the God of the word. And he will never speak contrary to his revealed word. And he will always fulfill every word that he has ever spoken to us. Because at its heart, the revelation of God to us is the revelation of God for us. So I want to think with you about this idea that even though we didn't see it coming, this priesthood being given to the tribe of Judah, God had spoken truth so that if he chose to reveal it, it would have been there for us to see. But he does speak the things that we need to know, and he does speak the things that are true, and everything he says always comes to pass exactly the way that he says it will, even when we do not fully understand. And that's kind of where we are always, isn't it? God says things, we don't really understand what he's saying, we're not really quite sure how to take this truth or that truth or put it all together. And so for much of what we're doing, we're left with the idea that God is calling us to trust and to believe simultaneously. And you might find it helpful if you pause for just a minute to consider why it is that God is actually speaking. Does God need to reveal himself? Is there anything intrinsically in the revelation of God that adds anything to him? No, of course not. So why would God speak? 
He would speak for us. He would speak so that we might know him. He would speak as a blessing to his people. He would speak so that his people would recognize who it is. It pleases God to provide evidence to us for our hope and our confidence. It pleases God to give us what we need so that we might know him and delight in him and walk in his ways. It is the pleasure and the mercy of God to speak to his people. He has given us his word. He has given us the truth contained in such a manner that we can not only see it and read it and understand it, we can carry it with us. We can take it everywhere we go. So, this revelation of God has been coming for a long time and has been given to us, according to the writer of Hebrews at the very beginning, way, way back a long time ago, if you remember. It says that, In times past, God spoke to his people in various ways, but now he has spoken through his son, Jesus. And so it took all of human history for God to reveal everything that was needful to bring Christ to bear. And then we had about a 60-year period following Christ, wherein the rest of what he wanted us to see and to understand was composited together and was written down for our edification. This is the word of God. This is the Bible. It is the truth of what God has said. And it's important for us to understand that even when we do not see it plainly, it still speaks plainly and truthfully. So consider this idea that the the scripture says it was evident, or it is evident, that Messiah arose from Judah. So the people who were processing and understanding and, and dealing with the word of God prior to the coming of Christ, were indeed expecting Messiah to come out of the tribe of Judah. What they weren't expecting was for Messiah to not only be a king, but a priest. Now, there's enough in there that would let you put it together with what you know now. But for them, prior to the coming of Christ, this was new and strange. This was a revelation when it came to pass. This was something outside of the expectation that anybody bore for it. This was something that God had chosen not to say, even though he had told them much about Messiah coming. But even in him telling them what Messiah was, how he came was still a bit of a surprise. Listen to Isaiah 53. He shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of the dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, There's no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Would you not think that a Messiah coming to a people who have been waiting for this Messiah for a thousand years would be received by them and seen by them as beautiful and desirable and let's you know party and, and have a giant feast and, and let's put a crown on his head and let's celebrate everything that he did. And had Jesus come in the ways that men expected, that just might have happened. And had Jesus only had one mission, and that one mission had been to reestablish an earthly Davidic throne, that might have been how God chose to send him. But Jesus had a much larger task at hand. And in that larger task, Jesus did not come as a king, 
But instead, he was born in the lowliest of fashions to a very lowly family from a very backwater, frowned-upon part of the land. He was like from the West Virginia of, of, of Israel. No offense to West Virginia, but I know how people talk about it, right? I mean, he was a hillbilly. He was backwoods. He was rough. He was not of the elite people. And as such, when people looked at him, they kind of went, who's this guy? What's fascinating and what's remarkable is that even this rejection of him, this idea that when people looked at him, they went, ah, was foretold. And still, when he came, they're saying, I thought you were supposed to be a king. Isn't that strange? Aren't there times in our lives where God says something very plain And if we'll just step back from our agenda and our desire and our thoughts about how it's going to play out, we would see the answer that we're looking for, but we cannot see it because we are so blinded by our own expectations. Isn't that strange how we still make these same mistakes? You see, God speaks, and he speaks on our behalf that we would know him. Now, to be fair, splendor did come in its due time. Isaiah chapter 4, verse 2 says, In that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and appealing for those of Israel who have escaped. So when the culmination of everything that Jesus came to do is finally done, and he has returned and established his kingdom on the earth, then that exaltation will occur. Until then, he's content. You see, there was splendor promised, because Messiah was supposed to be born a king. There is splendor still coming, because Messiah is the king. He is the king of kings, the Lord of lords. He is God over all, and he deserves the worship of all of mankind. So this idea of David being born, or Jesus being born, was established that he would be born to the Davidic line. Isaiah 11.1 says, There shall come forth from the rod a stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow forth out of his roots. And Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 5 says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. See, God promised that this Messiah would come from the kingly line of David. They understood the reality of who he was supposed to be. Did he fulfill that? He did. We have in the genealogies of both Matthew and Luke that Jesus is a direct descendant from David. He fulfilled the promise. He just didn't fulfill it in the human splendor that the world expected. And so often when God does things in our lives, he doesn't do it in the way that we're looking for him to do it. And we often allow that to disrupt us in our faith. We often allow that to keep us from doing the things that God has called us to do and from doing the things that God is preparing in front of us. You see, the truth is, is that God gives us all the information we need to do what he tells us to do. He may not give us all the information we want, but he gives us all the information we need. Listen to the words of Amos chapter 3, verse 7. Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secrets to his servants, the prophets. 
Isn't that a remarkable statement? That God will do nothing apart from his revelation to his people so that they will see what he's doing, understand what he's doing, and be able to join him in what he's doing. You see, he wants us to hear him. He wants us to understand his will. He wants us to walk in obedience. He calls us to do this. And even though there are parts of it that may be hidden, he is still calling us to believe what he says. And he will always give us enough reasons to see his word and to take him at his word and to believe him. This is his promise to us. He will grant to us exactly what is necessary. The Spirit of God helps us with the reminders he was given as a promise from Jesus. And remember Jesus said one of the things the Spirit would do in John chapter 14 is that he will, uh, verse 26 says, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and will bring to your remembrance all the things that I said to you. So when God speaks to us in his word and speaks to us about the things that he's going to do, he will give us what is needful for us to be able to believe. He will give us what is necessary so that we can accomplish whatever he has said in front of us to do. This is not because we are needed by God for God to accomplish his will. Amen? This is because God wants us to have the opportunity to participate with him in what he's doing. God wants us to be blessed with the partnership of being in his service. This is his desire for us. This is his will for us, that we would be able to walk in obedience to him. So for that to happen, God has to speak to us. Make sense? If, if God's going to communicate his truth to us, he would have to speak to us. So we can say it's evident that our Lord arose from Judah. Why is it evident? Well, because we have the whole history of the Old Testament where God, in, in dozens and dozens of places, gave indication of who Messiah was going to be, when he was going to come, how he was going to come. It should have been no surprise to them that he would be born in Bethlehem, right? We, we talked about this just a month or so ago when the wise men came they came to Herod and said, so where's the king? And Herod turns to the wise men and says, where's the king supposed to be born? And the wise men say what? In Bethlehem of Judea, because it says, thou, O Bethlehem. They knew the verse. They knew the place. They understood exactly what was going on. And yet, everybody's weirded out because Jesus wasn't born in the palace. There's no palace in Bethlehem. You see, we, we let our expectations and our thinking about things disrupt us from understanding what God actually says. So the people had been given the word and the people had been given the truth because God speaks. And he speaks to us both in plain truth and in mystery. Doesn't he? Does God tell us everything there is to know? No. There are parts that he hides from us. Does he tell us everything we need to know? Yes. And somewhere in that vague gray land, does he tell us everything we want to know? No. But sometimes he's merciful and tells us some of it. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 29. 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So how is it that God speaks through the law and the testimonies. He speaks to us through the given revelation of his word 
so that we can obey what he says. Look, this is of, of utmost importance for every Christian to get their head around. God is speaking to you through his word. And if the only time that you open his word is on Sunday morning when I say, take your Bibles and open it, you are not hearing the voice of God no matter what you think. You may think that he speaks to you in visions. You may think that he speaks to you in dreams. You may think that he speaks to you through some sort of magical revelation. But I will tell you the truth. According to scripture, God speaks by his word through the spirit. And he uses the word of God as the vehicle of his communication Period. End of discussion. It is God's word, which is the foundation of everything else that we know. And even though he may use the body to help us and use other things to help us, he is always going to filter all of those other inputs through what? The word. They're always going to align themselves with the word if they are truth. They are always going to agree with the word if they are true. Which is why it's a really easy thing for us to recognize when somebody's giving us good counsel. You just ask yourself the question, does this align itself with the word of God? If it doesn't, you are free to chuck the counsel right out the window. Because it's not good counsel. It's worthless. In fact, it's bad counsel. It's going to hurt you. And it doesn't matter how logically they lay it out, how, how many buzzwords they fill their conversation with, how much psychobabble they tell you that this really matters because the latest tests and studies have told us this, how much wokeism they want to pour into it, how much cultural relevance they want to pour into it, how much pressure they want to put into it for you to obey or you'll suffer punishment. It does not matter. Take what they say and compare it to the word of God, and if it does not match, jettison their counsel. Period. Because God speaks so that we might know. And he speaks so that in the context of how we live this life, we understand enough. So there's a couple of things that are really burdening my heart for us. And the first one is, is that we understand that enough does not mean everything. And that's really, really hard for us to accept. Because we have a lot of questions, don't we? There's a lot of things we want to understand better. There's a lot of things we want to get our heads into and around. There's a lot of things we want to really be able to process and grind away. And there are things that happen that we want explanations for. And the sad, sad truth for us is that God often is not going to answer those questions this side of glory. And you just have to accept that. Because the secret things belong to whom? To God. They're His. But the things that are revealed belong to whom? To us. So when we will not take God's word into our lives, and we will not measure our lives against his word, and we will not submit unto his word, we are not only grasping at the things that belong to God and therefore trying to be a thief, we are rejecting the good things he has given us and therefore being an ungrateful wretch. It's really kind of an obnoxious position to put yourself in. And yet, how many of us do it? There are so many people that never even open the Bible unless they are forced to. So, when it says that it is evident that Judah would be the source of Messiah, it is evident that Judah was 
written to be the king, they got that part. But there was nothing written about the, the tribe of Judah through Messiah taking on the priesthood. God didn't reveal this twist to his plan. He didn't say, oh, by the way, there, there's, a, there's a real world-changing event going to happen, and not only is the tribe of Judah going to have the kingship, which everybody's expecting, but they're also going to take over the priesthood. That, that wasn't exactly what, what they were expecting to hear. So nobody really saw that coming, and it doesn't mean that it's not true, because God uses his secrets as his own to reveal or not as he sees fit. So how do you, how do you deal with that tension? The fact that God gives us some things, holds some things to himself, how do, how do we deal with that? Well, first of all, it's our duty to seek to understand everything that we can. So I'm going to say it again. If you're not regularly reading the scripture, you need to be. If you are not regularly taking in the word of God on an absolutely steady, regular, prescribed fashion, and, and there's, there's a billion different Bible reading plans, but read consistently, read in a structured fashion, read, read, read. Take in the word of God and don't just cherry pick a few favorite verses. You need to take in the Word of God so that you understand what God is saying because you have to understand everything you can. You also have to admit and acknowledge that there are some things that you cannot and will not be able to understand and you need to leave those things in the hand of God. And thirdly, you need to set yourself to do everything that is in your power to do to obey the pieces that God makes plain to you. That makes sense? So that's the place of tension. We understand God holds some things, we're not going to get them. We seek to get everything we can, and we do everything that God tells us. That's how we hear His voice. That's how we seek to obey Him. That's how we walk in obedience unto Him, because a God who is speaking is a God who should be listened to. Does that make sense? It does you no good to go find some idol somewhere and sit and go, what do you got to say? Because that idol is not going to say anything to you. It does you no good to pray before a statue of somebody. It does you no good to wait outside a little golden box for a magical wafer to appear and talk to you. It does you no good to have any of these things that people say, well, this is how I hear from God. Because that is not how you hear from God. You hear from God by going to His Word. You hear from God by seeking His face by the Spirit in His Word. And God will speak to you. And he will tell you more than you can possibly obey. So if you're a person who's really, you know, an alpha dog, going to make sure I get all my lists checked and everything done, I promise you, you will never exhaust everything that God has for you to say, to understand, to do, and to obey. You'll never get to the bottom of it. This is the truth of who our God is and what he calls us to do. Now, these mysteries that are wrapped up in Scripture, they are either hidden or revealed by God. This means that if we go back, and like I said, this side of Calvary, knowing what we know now, we can go back and kind of look at some verses that might give us an indication that Judah would take over the priesthood. And I think it's important that those things are hidden in there because it does validate that we haven't gone astray. Make sense? If there was absolutely nothing to indicate that, that Messiah would also take on a priestly role, you might 
have some valid concern that maybe we've gone astray. Because remember, the scripture is the guide for all things. But looking back at it with what we know now of what Christ did and who Christ was and what Christ came to do, we can understand that the scripture has given us enough, even though it didn't tell it explicitly. That's what the writer of Hebrews is getting at. Again, right here in verse 7 or verse 14, he says, It is evident, so the part that was plain, that Jesus our Lord rose from Judah. So the, the Messiah, the king part, that part they got. Of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. So the five books of Moses didn't say anything about Judah having anything to do with the priesthood. But he doesn't say that there's nothing there. He's just saying it wasn't plainly given. So now we can go back and look. Now we can go back and understand. Now we can kind of put our heads around it and say that there are clues and, and indications that are there. And it requires of us some active listening, but it requires more than just active listening. It requires spiritual listening. Sixteen times in the New Testament, Jesus said, in one form or another, let those who have ears to hear, hear. He used eight of them in the Gospels and eight of them in the book of Revelation when the, with the letter to the churches. But it's still Jesus saying, I want you to pay attention to what I'm saying. Let those who have ears hear what I'm saying. And everybody goes, I have ears. Okay, they're there. They're working. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about physical hearing. He's talking about a spiritual dimension to what you hear. God is the one who opens our spiritual ears. Isaiah 50, verses 4 and 5 says this, The Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. So God speaking to the prophet Isaiah said, I've got you covered. I have told you everything you need to know. I have opened your ears. I have given you wisdom. I have given you guidance so that what you need to say is provided at the right time. And I have given you understanding so that when you open up the scrolls and when I speak to you, you hear me plainly. You understand what I'm getting at. This is the will of God. This is the gift of God. This is the purpose of God. And so necessarily it means that those who are outside of God do not understand his truth. The New Testament gives us a little clarity on this. Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians 2, and Paul writing to this very subject, starting at verse 19, says this. I'm sorry, verse 9. <clears throat> As it is written... Eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit of who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely told to us by God. 
These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord, that we may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So there's some things that I want to see here in this passage with you. Firstly, we need to understand that spiritual hearing itself is a gift from God. If you have any spiritual understanding whatsoever, if you open up the Word of God and you see something more than just... It's like bad static. If you have any more indication than that, that there is something actually going on in the Word of God, that is a gift from God. And the more you use that skill and the more you hone that skill and the more you listen, the more you will understand. It is, a, it is an increasing skill that God gives when we seek His face. He will always do it, but it comes from Him. It is not from us. It comes from Him through His Spirit. So we have the Spirit of God dwelling in us. We have the Spirit of God communicating truth to us. We have the Spirit of God giving us wisdom and understanding so that we might understand. And He gives this to us freely. He does not require us to do anything, to say anything, to be anything. He does not require any level of previous righteousness to speak to us because when God calls us to life so that we can hear, we are still guilty of hating Him. He moves first. He calls us unto Himself while we are still rebels against His will. We can hear nothing that He says, but when He calls us to life, He opens our ears and we begin to hear. Amen. It is that voice of God that calls a man unto himself. It also says that these things have been given to us, that we have been given. So these things have been given. Um, God has revealed them to us through His Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, what man knows the thing of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the Spirit of God except God. Verse 12, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God. Verse 13, these things also we speak not in words by man's wisdom, but which the Holy Spirit teaches. Um, so in the end, all of this is this idea that those things that have been given are ours to understand but it also implies that there are things that the Spirit is not giving. Right? Doesn't it imply that there are pieces that the Spirit is still withholding, secrets that God is keeping unto Himself? I think so. I think in the end, if we understand that God is speaking to us, we have to understand that God is not speaking everything to us. Because we couldn't contain everything. We're not that big. We're not that smart. We're not that great. But everything that God gives to us is this idea that the Spirit is giving us this wisdom. Now, the knowledge of these things is not merely physical. Most people of middle school age can read adequately enough to take on the sense of the words that are being instructed in Scripture. 
There are translations of the Bible that are written for a sixth grade level which communicate perfectly adequately the truth of God's Word. And most school-age children will be able to read that book and tell you what it says English to English. But to know what it means, to know what God is actually saying, requires something else. This is not merely a physical taking on of information. This is a spiritual imparting of truth which is given only by God. So those without spiritual life cannot comprehend spiritual things, nor can they comprehend spiritual truth. Now, any of you who have ever shared the gospel with anybody know this completely. You know that when you speak to some people, the shutters are dark and the lights are out. And they're just looking at you like, what are you talking about? Nothing you say makes any sense. Nothing you say has any impact. This is what I think. This is what I believe. This is what I know. Why are you talking about this other stuff? Even though you are answering every question, speaking the truth that needs to be addressed, and dealing with the situation according to the very word of God, they hear nothing, they see nothing, they understand nothing because they are dead. They just can't. You say, well, then why bother? Because the scripture tells us that it is the very word of God that calls the dead to life. So we go and we proclaim the truth. And in the middle of talking to somebody who has completely shut you out, what happens is suddenly, boom, the lights come on in their home. And they say, nobody's ever said that to me. And you say, I just said it five minutes ago and you called me a liar. (laughs) It really works that way. Here's the thing. When lightning strikes, it's not because you're great. But there's a flip side to that, which is really good. Which means when lightning doesn't strike, it's not because you're bad. And that's a burden that every preacher should have shoved off his shoulders, although they pile it on themselves. It has nothing to do with how many times you sing just as I am. It has nothing to do with how well you speak the words of the gospel. It has nothing to do with anything except the pleasure of God to call the dead to life. It doesn't mean you don't go speak the truth. It just means that you need to understand what you're doing. You are communicating the truth that may or may not, according to the pleasure of God, call someone into the kingdom. And your job is very simple. Your job is to communicate the truth. As Jared prayed in his prayer earlier, let the seeds that we plant, let them bear fruit. That's the only thing that can change it, is God's hand to change it. It is because God speaks to his children and not to outsiders. Does that make sense? He talks to those that are his own. He speaks to us. And he speaks to us because he has chosen us and made us his children. So fifthly, we see that those who belong to God with spiritual life and discernment given by God, we can both judge the truth of things as well as, this is the part that hurts, expect those around us to reject the things we say. We can look at a situation, we can look at a conflict, we can look at an issue, and we can say, this is the truth of God's word. And we can express that plainly and clearly to the people involved. We can can speak truth 
and we can know that what we're saying is right and true, and they're going to reject every word of it. Right? You say, well, that seems sort of arrogant, but I want to remind you again what Paul says right here in verses 15 and 16. He who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. Now, why is this? It is because part of what God gives to us as his children, part of our spiritual inheritance, is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, who is the very mind of Christ. We are being transformed into the likeness of Christ by the person of the Spirit, who is giving to us the mind of Christ. So the spiritual understanding that you have, the discernment that God gives to you about the truth of the Scripture and how to apply it, that is evidence of the mind of Christ being formed in you. And that is a glorious thing. That truth all by itself changes the scope and scale of everything else. That truth all by itself means that we don't really have to fret too much about the parts we don't understand or don't know. Do you remember when Jesus was speaking to his disciples and they said to him, tell us when these things will be? And Jesus said, I can tell you the general picture of what things are going to look like, but as to the actual hour, nobody knows, not even me. That statement blows my mind. Now, let me amend it. I'm, I'm fairly confident that he knows now. <laughs> Having returned to the throne and being in the presence of the Father. I don't think it's a surprise to him now. I heard, I heard a preacher talking about this just the other day, and I think he was wrong. He was saying, oh, you know, Jesus is up there waiting, working really hard, just waiting for the moment when God will say, okay, that's enough, go get your bride. And the way he was putting it made it sound like Jesus was really anxiously awaiting, like he didn't know what's going on. I don't think that's true. I think he knows now. But when he was here as one of us, he confessed without rancor and he confessed without shame. I don't know. Look, you have the right to recognize that there are things you don't know and things you're not going to know. And that's okay. Because God is the one who reveals what he reveals. What's your job? To search out everything you can, to leave the things that are his in his hand, and to do everything he tells you to do. That's your job. That's your calling. That part we can handle. So this, having been given the mind of Christ, is a remarkable gift, and it is a remarkable promise that even when it doesn't work out how we would like it to, it's not because you did it wrong. Okay? If you're speaking the truth of God, and you're not like hitting somebody with a stick while you're doing it, you're not doing it wrong. Just speak the truth of God. And whether they accept it or not is not your concern. And whether they feel judged or not is not your concern. And whether they get angry or not is not your concern. Your concern is to obey your God and speak His truth. All those other things, that's just their guilt speaking to them. That's the only voice they hear. They hear their guilt. They hear their sin. They hear their flesh. They hear the condemnation of their own conscience, which is God's ally in their heart on your behalf, by the way. They hear all of that while they are blind to the truth of the Scripture because God has been pleased to hide it from them. Does that mean that God does not speak? No. So let's think about the connection then between spiritual deafness, spiritual blindness, and sin. Because there is a connection. 
There is, there is the pleasure of God to open our eyes. But why are we blind in the first place? Sin. We're blind because of sin. We're blind because of the fall. There is a deep and fundamental connection between sin and spiritual blindness. And sometimes the reason for our continuing misunderstanding and our continuing ignorance is simply sin. For instance, if, if you were a person who is not regularly taking in the word of God and you feel like, I don't understand what's going on in the world. Now, I'll tell you the truth. I'm not sure I understand what's going on in the world. There are pieces I can kind of put to. But, but really, there, there's a great deal of comfort in knowing that God knows. And just that much by itself lets me say, well, that's one of those secret things. I'll let God deal with it. And I can look at some of the circumstances and look at some of the situations and say, God is doing this, and it must be for our good, and I don't understand why, but he does, and that's okay. But if you're looking at a situation that Scripture has spoken to plainly, and you don't know what's going on, and you're just making it up as you go, well, the spiritual blindness that you are exhibiting can be traced back to the sin of your willful disobedience to the taking in of God's word. Make sense? Because if you take in God's word, what's going to happen? God's going to speak. And God's going to speak to you through his spirit because he promised he would. See the connection? So sometimes our spiritual blindness or ignorance is simply our sin. See, the truth is that God alone is God. There is no other. Look at Isaiah 44. I want to show you some stuff here. If God alone is God, then does anybody have the right to tell him what he is supposed to do or not do? No. If God alone is God, is there anybody else to whom we should turn for the answers to life? No. Not to any person, not to any place, not to anything, not to any practice. I promise you, no matter what the people in power say, the science is not the answer. Okay? God is the answer to all of it. And obedience to his word is the path to understanding that answer. But Isaiah 44, starting at verse 6. We'll read through verse 8, and then i got a couple of things to point out. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who can proclaim as I do? Let him declare it and set it in order for me since I appointed the ancient people, and the things that are coming and shall come. Let them show these to them. Do not fear, nor be afraid. Have I not told you that from time and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? Indeed, there is no other rock that I know. There is no other rock. I know not one. So God alone is the authority for everything that we do, and he alone is the source for our understanding. So if he alone is the source for our understanding and we are pursuing understanding about the things that he is speaking to us about from some other source. So let's let's talk about a hot button issue in the culture today. Let's talk about human sexuality. The culture says that people have the right to identify themselves in any way that they want. Boys can identify as boys, girls can identify 
as, I mean, boys can identify as girls, girls can identify as boys, and they can all identify as cats. They can be whatever they want to be. Everybody should be okay with it. The culture says this is it, and they are blaming it on whatever they're blaming it on. And the church has a decision to make. Are we going to yield to the pressure of culture, or are we going to stand on what God's word has said? That's really the the essence of the question. And where we stand and where we fall is 100% dependent upon the answer to this question and a hundred other like it regarding what God says versus what the culture says. But we'll stay focused on the one. If we are yielding to the pressure of culture so that the culture does not get angry at us, if we are yielding to the pressure of culture because we think that maybe the Bible is just a little bit dated and needs some updated information, if we are yielding to the pressure of culture because we, we want to make sure we keep our likes and our, our thumbs up going on our Facebook accounts, if we are yielding to the culture because of all of the things that we think we must have, then we are not listening to God and, hear this, we are worshiping at an idol's altar. Okay? You are bending the knee to somebody besides God to do what only God can do. He says right here, there is no God. Listen to me. I've told you what things are. I've told you how the world got put in place. I've told you the fundamental creation, the fundamental nature, the fundamental reality of what is and what isn't. And nobody else has the power or the authority or the wisdom or the right to speak to what I have spoken to, period. That's the word of God. Now, please hear me. I'm not saying I personally have spoken to these things, but that is what God says to us. So the church must recognize that we are in a very dangerous place because ultimately, if we go after idols, God will punish us with idols. Do you understand that? You understand that fundamental truth that if you chase after idols, the punishment that God delivers is to give you more idols to chase and make you deal with what they bring into your life. Let's read on. Verse 9. Those who make an image, all of them are useless. Their precious things shall not profit. They are their own witnesses. They neither see nor know that they should be ashamed. Who would form a God or mold an image? Surely all of his companions would be ashamed. And the workmen, they're mere men. Let them be gathered together. Let them stand up. Yet they shall fear. They shall be ashamed together. The blacksmith with the tongs works one in the coals, fashions it with hammers, and works it with the strength of his arms. Even so, if he's hungry and his strength fails, he drinks no water and he's faint. The craftsman stretches out his rule. He marks one out with chalk. He fashions it with a plane. He marks it out with the compass and makes it like the figure of a man. According to the beauty of a man, that it may remain in the house. He cuts down cedars for himself, takes the cypress and the oak. He secures it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a pine and the rain nourishes it. Then it shall be for a man to burn. He will take some of it to warm himself. Yes, he kindles it and bakes bread. Indeed, he makes a god and worships it. He carves a carved image and falls down to it. He burns half of it in the fire. And with this half, he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. He even warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm, I've seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, a carved image that he falls down before and worships and prays to it and says, You are my god. 
They do not know, nor do they understand, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. And no one considers in his heart, nor is there knowledge nor understanding to say, I've burned half of it in the fire, yes, also I've baked bread on its coals and roasted meat and eaten it, and shall I make the rest of it into an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes, a deceived heart has turned him aside. He cannot deliver his soul, nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? And beloved, hear this. When you talk to people out in the world, and they say, I believe this with all my heart. You need to understand, they're telling you the absolute truth. They do not know the lie that has consumed them. They do not know the lie that is twisting their minds and twisting their souls into darkness. They're telling you the truth when they say, I believe this. This is the truth. They're not right, but they're not lying to you. They're lying to themselves. And in the end, it is a consequence of their obsession with idols. It is a consequence of their obsession with these things that they have made. Look at Psalm 115. Psalm 115. And we'll start reading at verse 3. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever He pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk, nor do they mutter through their throat. Those who make them are like them, and so is everyone who trusts in them. Do you understand this? Do you see the connection? When you refuse to seek God's face and chase after idols... God disciplines you with idols, and the consequence of pursuing idols is spiritual blindness and deafness. Those who make them are like them, and those who worship them will be made like them. Eyes that do not see, ears that do not hear, hands that do not feel, lips that do not taste, lips that do not speak, they mutter, they make no noise. It is an abomination before God to worship these things. And when we do it, spiritually, we become like that which we worship. This is a fundamental truth of all worship. Worship shapes us. So when we worship the God who is, and we worship Him according to truth, and we worship Him according to His self-revelation in His own word, we are shaped into His image. We are made like unto Him when we worship in His presence. This is the process of the Spirit of God working out Christ in us. And worship is an integral part of it. It's why you really need to be actively participating in the public worship of God. I'm I'm very glad for the technology that lets people worship from afar, but let me tell you the truth. It is no substitute for being among God's people. We need this because worship shapes us. And if you are a person who worships sports, 
guess what? It shapes you into its likeness, and you become that person. You become that thing. And everything that you do and everything that you are about becomes fashioned according to that. And if you worship an idol, guess what? You become like it. We have to recognize this truth because God is still speaking to us in spite of the fact that we are still disobeying. Look, the the main thing here is those who are outside of Christ. But do you understand that it affects us sometimes too? Even Christians can have seasons of spiritual blindness because perhaps they have neglected to take in the word or perhaps they have neglected to obey what is plain and clear pretending that the dark and hidden parts prevent obedience on the plain and sunny parts. I've had that conversation more times than I want to remember. You start to speak to somebody about something that really needs to be addressed in their soul, and they say, yeah, but but what about the 666 in Revelation? And that applies how? I was talking about you cheating on your wife. (laughs) Yeah, but we, we think that the things that don't matter, should keep us from doing the things that do. And it's just it's a symptom of the darkness that consumes us. And when we do this, it creates spiritual blindness in us. When we do this, it fashions in us the character of the God that we are worshiping. Perhaps we had wisdom and we've fallen into sin, and thus we've been led to folly. Look, here's the truth. The word of God is plainly given. Amen? God speaks plainly. It's evident that that Messiah would come from Judah. But there are things that are still hidden. Moses didn't say anything about him being a priest. Didn't say anything about Judah having anything to do with the altar. Sin blinds us often to the meaning and the application of Scripture. Look at Isaiah 28. Isaiah chapter 28 starting at verse 7. They also have erred through wine, and through intoxicating drink are out of the way. The priest and the prophet have erred through intoxicating drink. They're swallowed up by wine. They're out of the way through intoxicating drink. They err in vision. They stumble in judgment. The tables are full of vomit and filth. No place is clean. Whom will he teach knowledge? And to whom will he make to understand the message? Those just weaned from milk? Those just drawn from the breasts? For precept must be upon precept, line upon line, here a little and there a little. You see, the word of God is given, and we often think that we can rightly see it and apply it in our own strength. But apart from God's spirit and God's presence, apart from his active involvement in what we're looking at and learning and studying and reading, We're going to get it wrong. And and the priesthood that Isaiah is speaking about here in Israel during the time of Isaiah's ministry is a perfect example of that. Most of them could have quoted the entire Old Testament from memory. Just think about that for a minute. But to apply it faithfully, they weren't able. They weren't capable of doing what was necessary to apply the truth of God's word because they were operating in their own wisdom and in their own strength instead of in the power of God. And beloved, we can fall into that same trap. We can fall into the same trap of saying, I got this. I know what the Bible says. I understand this truth. I had this years ago. 
And then you get out on a limb and you find out you're cutting the wrong side of the limb. It's not such a good thing. You want to make sure that you're always cutting the part that's away from the tree to you, not the part that's towards the tree. That hurts. We, we, we find ourselves in these situations because we are ignorant in them. And, and God says, look, I have to speak truth precept upon precept and base upon base and little bit upon little bit. This is the way that we teach. We have to understand these things and we have to stay at them. We have to apply it according to what God says. Look now at verse 11, same chapter. For with stammering lips and another tongue he will speak to this people, to whom he said, This is the rest with which you may cause the weary to rest, and this is the refreshing. But they would not hear. But the word of the Lord was to them precept upon precept and line upon line. Here a little, there a little, that they may go and fall backward and be broken, be snared and caught. See, ultimately, when you realize, I, I don't have the blessing of God upon what I'm doing anymore. When you realize I really don't understand what's going on, when you realize you look at your life and you say, I'm not doing anything that I should be doing, and my life is a ruin because of it, and you keep going in the same way, what happens? Even the things that you knew, they become to you a stumbling block. They become to you the thing that aims you at your own destruction. Determination to continue in the way of sin just might blind you permanently. Jeremiah 13, starting at verse 15, says this, Hear and give ear. Do not be proud, for the Lord has spoken. Give glory to the Lord your God before he causes darkness and before your feet stumble on the dark mountains. And while you're looking for light, he'll turn it into the shadow of death and make it dense darkness. But if you will not hear it, my soul will weep secretly for your pride. My eyes will weep bitterly and run down with tears because the Lord's flock has been taken captive. Now sometimes the judgment of God may perhaps bring us back to repentance. Ezekiel 12 verses 1 and through 3 says, Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, you dwell in the midst of a rebellious house which has eyes to see but does not see and ears to hear but does not hear for they are a rebellious house. Therefore, son of man, prepare your belongings for captivity and go into captivity by day in their sight. You shall go from your place into captivity to another place in their sight. And it may be that they will consider, though they are a rebellious house. Look, blindness to the truth does not make you free from judgment. You understand that? The law puts it really simply. Ignorance of the law is no excuse. Right? Blindness to the truth doesn't mean that you're free from its judgment. Jesus told a parable about two men. He says, there, there's those who hear my word and don't obey it. They're like a guy that goes out to build a house. And he looks for a place to build a house. And he looks around and he sees a nice, soft, sandy area. And he says, that'll be really easy building. And so he builds a house right there on the sand. And the rain came and the house fell. And great was its destruction. But those who hear my word and obey it are like the man that went to a place and dug down to the rock. And he set the foundation deep on the rock. And he built his house with a foundation buried true and planted deep. And when the rain came and the storm came and the winds blew and beat against the house, the house stood firm. Beloved, this is the, the thing that is set before us. Either we hear the word of God and take him at his word, believing what he says in spite of what we don't understand, or 
we go according to our own understanding, which, newsflash, you're going to understand a whole lot less based on your own than you do with God. But take it how you'll take it and go how you'll go. But in the end, we will either take God at his word or we will go according to our pleasure. And the consequences of those decisions just might be the very worst thing we've ever known. I don't want to end on that note. I want to to make sure I say this plainly. If there is a connection between sin and blindness, there is also a connection between repentance and restoration. Okay? We have to understand this. God heals a repentant heart. 2 Chronicles chapter 7, starting at verse 12. We hear parts of this a lot, but I want you to hear the context. The Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said to him, I have heard your prayer, and I have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens and there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer made in this place. For now I have chosen and sanctified this house that my name may be there forever. And my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. As for you, if you walked before me as your father David walked and do according to all that I have commanded you, and if you keep my statutes and my judgments. And he goes on with more promises there. Now, I want to try and tie all this together. Did you hear what he said about I have made this place the place where I'm going to hear prayer? What was he talking about? The temple in Jerusalem. Is that a problem for us? The temple in Jerusalem is gone. Why is it not a problem? Because Jesus said, I will tear this temple down and I will raise it up in three days. And in in that declaration, Jesus was telling us that the temple that mattered was no longer going to be the temple that Solomon built and then was destroyed and then was rebuilt by the Babylonian or on the Babylonian dime by the Jews during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. And it was not the temple that Herod had improved, which was the temple that was standing when Jesus was there. None of those temples were going to matter anymore. The temple that matters from that point, the point of his death, until the return of Christ at the end of all things, is the temple of Christ himself, who dwells in us. And we are told in Corinthians that you are the temple of God. Now, usually we apply that verse to mean don't smoke, don't drink, don't run around with girls that do, and I got that little ditty all backwards. But the truth of the matter is, if you are the temple of God, you are the very place where God dwells. And if you are the very place where God dwells, then you are the one who speaks and God hears. Because he has set his eye to be attentive on that place. Do you understand? And so when we get this wrong and we fail and we walk away and we wander into darkness and we sin and we ruin and we do all the things that we do because we're us, the way back is as simple as saying, God, please have mercy and forgive me. Because repentance always leads to restoration. Always. Don't come with your excuses. Don't come with your explanations. Don't come with your justifications. Come Repentant and say, God, 
have mercy on me. And what you will hear him say is yes. That is always the case. Because genuine repentance always leads to restoration. Beloved, we have never been in more need of clarity and restoration than at this time. I'm convinced of it. But the answer now is the same answer that has always been. And that is repentance. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would give to us grace, and I pray, God, that you would give us hearts that seek your face and submit to your will. God, give us the grace to repent of our sin. Give us the grace to to cry out to you for mercy, not only for ourselves, but for our land. And I pray, God, that you would pour out a spirit of revival upon this land, begin even here in this church, begin even here in my heart, and turn us to yourself. God, let our eyes and our wills and our ways be fixed steadfastly on you. And let us walk in obedience to your commandments so that we might honor the Christ who is everything. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.